Laura was alone with the day. It painted at her with a stale sweetness on its breath, with a faint, used peppermint smell that made her want to be sick in the gutter, but she shut her mouth tightly and walked on. Hurry up, Chant, said the prefect at the gate. It was sorry Carlyle himself, checking that people riding bikes were doing in a so in a sober fashion, not doing wheelies or riding on the footpath. First bell's gone! He had gray eyes with a curious trick of turning silver if you looked at them from the side. Some people thought they looked dependable, but to Laura there was nothing safe about them. They were tricky-looking glass eyes with quicksilver surfaces and tunnels, staircases and mirror mazes hidden behind them, none of them leading anywhere that was recognizable. Laura and Sorensen looked at each other now, smiling but not in friendship. They smiled out of cunning, and a shared secret flicked from eye to eye. Laura walked past him in at the school gates, bravely turning right into the mouth of the day, right into its open jaws, which she must enter despite all warnings. She felt the jaws snap down behind her and knew she had been swallowed up. The day spread its strangeness before her resigned eyes, its horror growing thin and wispy as it sank away. The flow came back into the world once more, and the warning became a memory, eagerly forgotten because it was useless to remember it. The warning had come. She had ignored it. There was nothing more to be said. Welcome to Girls Talk Comics Book Club Edition. Book Club Edition. Book Book Club Edition. Yeah. This is Erin, your Master of Mediocrity, joined today by... Jessica, the Lieutenant of Literature, and as we just told you, I'm here to drag the Master of Mediocrity through a cringy, soul-bearing episode of Book Club again. Aren't you all excited? Today we're reading The Changeover, A Supernatural Romance by Margaret Mayhew. I love it. <laughs> this is a book that I first read when I was digging through my mom's books, which, if you knew my mother, you would know is mostly self-help books in the, like, line of spiritual healing or, like, how to heal your inner child or, like, you know, seven steps to a successful business life or whatever. That seemed to be most of what she had in her closet, except for this old stolen library book from one of the towns in which she had briefly lived and then never took back. It was hard covered. That is covered so on brand for this book too. Isn't like that it? Is, I love it. That just <laughs> feels like something that should happen to this book. So my mother, my single mother, had this book in her back pocket and at like the studying age of like ten or eleven I go digging through, curious, because I'm already really into books, and I find it, and it's this approachable-looking 200-something pages of magic, literal magic, and it has this witchy kind of cover on it, and, you know, like, oh, look, it's a romance, it's got this protagonist, so I'm reading it, and I'm like, holy fucking shit! I don't know if you listened to the rest of our episodes, but in a different episode when we were talking about the vision, I had mentioned that there's not a lot of media out there that really handles single motherhood very well. But this motherfucker sure as shit does. So Sure does. Boom. Basically, our protagonist, Laura, has this sort of sensitivity to 
the extra natural world. And she gets a warning one day that something bad is going to happen. She's had these warnings before, and they're always on the cusp of really actually bad shit, like her father leaving her and her mother. And um, so she kind of walks bravely into the day because there's nothing else she can do. And her brother and her fall under the basically the guiles of this kind of lemur spirit thing that's kind of like a spiritual vampire who has decided that her younger brother, Jacko, is going to be his next victim. And so that sets her off on this journey through the magic and mystery of being a preteen girl and the magic and mystery of this supernatural world that she has a little bit of a sensitivity to. And along the way, you know, she discusses things like romance and love and forgiveness and navigating broken family structures and allowing new people to come into those broken family structures and just really so crisp and very short book that hits so many so many things and i just love it so much so that leads me to erin have you ever heard of this book before i brought it up to you no i never had nor the movie nor the movie well we'll talk about that later what what did you think about the book I, at first, thought it would just be kind of typical romance, and it it was typical teenage YA romance, but ending it, it felt just so fun. Okay, I'm not going to say fun, because it, it wasn't exactly, you know, sunshine and rainbows through it, but it was sweet. It It was more adult than I think I wanted to give it credit, and not adult in the sense of anything graphic or X-rated. I think the most risque was a a singular grope (laughs) at one point in the book, (laughs) but it had a degree of kind of sweet maturity to it. And I don't know if that's just a difference in region, because I believe the author, Margaret, is either from New Zealand or Australia. She's New Zealand, yeah. The relationship between our protag, Laura, and Sorry, Sorensen, we're going to call him Sorry, was, I don't know, it was not complicated right? Like it had this complication to it that came from navigating two different personalities, navigating a new world, but not complicated in the whole love triangle thing. They were a degree of honest with each other. They were a degree, like the wooing process wasn't Romeo and Juliet. It wasn't Shakespearean over the top. Dramaticism, it was more kind of like how me and my partner are you know, like as adults. Yeah. It felt just a little bit more real in a sense. It's something I related to more than adult than I did at 14, but I barely remember how I felt as a 14-year-old. Laura's age is 14 in the book for listeners, and I liked the hardships that she faced. I liked the decisions that she had to come up against because her or her story was very relationship based. And, you know, there are stereotypes around relationships and women and those stories. And that's, what's important, but it wasn't, I mean, she had a sword at one point that she had to use to strike things out of her way, but those were almost like her overcoming her own restrictions, not something externally. And for her, her coming of age, her growth was defeating something evil, but it was also in nearly all regards, her only growing into her own self. And all the challenges were not external metaphors of that confrontation, but pretty internal metaphors for stepping up and doing the right thing and being a good person. So I really did like it. And I was kind of taken aback by liking it. Like I... (laughs) 
I was expecting something kind of cheesy and straightforward. And then I got to the end and I was like, oh, this shit's good. (laughs) I think so. The Blue Sword is my favorite book because I loved it before the book club. But I think out of everything Mm -hmm. we've read so far, this is the best book you've recommended to me on the list. I'm so happy. Straight up. This has been the best read. I'm so happy. And I got to ask, I know it's pretty probably a give me for and gave a little bit of it away in the intro, but why do you think I like this book so much? Well, it was a single mother. There was also, like, it wasn't, I don't know if I have the words to capture why I think it was your favorite. It was a confident young woman who was not afraid to get dirty, who cared deeply for those around her, and was, I don't know, she had to just kind of overcome herself, and she didn't become this demure, diminutive thing in response to sorry you know the love interest she actually dominated him (laughs) and he became this more demure character but i think for you it's just the relationships in it probably felt more like your life at the time and she has a level of confidence and skill set that i would have envied as a teenager yeah no i i did and i respected the world views presented it made sense to me in this very fundamental way. I was talking a little bit about, before the episode started, about the zeitgeist and how good literature is not just a solid foundational reading of, you know, stringing words together in a pleasant way, but also this ability to tap into something a little bit more fundamental in the people who are consuming the product, right? And I, a hundred percent from the first chapter where you see this whirlwind kind of snippy relationship between this preteen daughter and this single mother as they're both taking care of life being poor you know but not destitute having responsibilities and a schedule that are overwhelming but also just something they do you know talking to each other as if they are each other's best friends and confidants even though there is this sort of power imbalance and maturity level balance, but also understanding that that maturity balance is not necessarily traditional in the same way that other nuclear families would present. You don't have that authoritative figurehead over the top. You have a partnership of a preteen daughter and this mother navigating the world together in a way that is almost like being in a relationship you know, a romantic but not sexual one, which is something that I have mm-hmm. words for now that I didn't have words for when I was a child, where you are literally in a life partnership with your parent figure instead of being under the guardianship of them in, in a lot of ways. Whenever you live in a impoverished single parent situation, there's a lot of responsibility that you take on. And I didn't have any siblings, but I can totally feel the authenticity of you know, feeling almost like they're your own child whenever you're navigating the world, but also not being emotionally mature enough or developed enough or have enough bandwidth to deal with them the way that a parent would, you know. You still have childish mistakes where you get frustrated that you can't carry all of the things and your little brother and you slap him because you need him to behave, which is not in a way that I would want to react as a parent, but I could totally see myself reacting if my mother and I had another small person to take care of in the middle of that (laughs) thankfully it was just me but like I could totally see myself pushing the limits of that kind of empathy it it just feels so it feels like you're looking at somebody else's life instead of reading a piece of fiction 
I want to talk about two things from what you brought up. And one is not really something we can, I want to deep dive into. It's something I just kind of want to wrap up your thought that we had before where you're talking about how the writing for this is pretty middling. Like I honestly, when I finished reading it, I was like, technically, this is a pretty average book, right? But I still thought that the writing was really, really impactful, like super important. And so I've been thinking lately, like, I've read a lot of really technically exact, really perfect, really concise writing, that writing is also super boring. So this writing, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that it's pretty average, like it's easy to follow, it's simple to pick up, accessible for younger audiences it was able to capture like be that be accessible and also capture the maturity that comes with developing new relationships because laura laura's mom develops a relationship she gets a boyfriend later and laura has to grapple with that it captures the maturity of laura's first relationship that is not just passing glances but is pretty electric for a 14 year old It also captures the maturing of her understanding of like why where her parents are now after their divorce is better for them. Her and her mother have this really, I thought, honest conversation about other ways that sex can be important for adults. So finishing it and talking about and thinking about the technical skill and how the writing wasn't anything that I think is going to be an example like poetry is always there are certain poets that are this is the example of how to use the art i don't see the changeover really standing out as like a pinnacle of literature art but it still captures something rare and relatable and really really should stand out for that emotional thrall even though it might be technically average like it and so I just wanted to support you with what we were saying earlier. The second thing I wanted to talk about was the maturation of the relationships and the changes of them, because you were talking about how you don't have a lot of things that were similar to Laura's story, like a younger sibling. But I wonder, when confronted with changes in relationship and family dynamic, like the jealousy that Laura felt, the pain yes. that Laura felt, the betrayal, is that Yes, the idea that accurate? we were having a... And she says the first couple of chapters, I think, really captured my imagination and my heart. Kind of like you were talking about, technically not great, but I mean, really good, solid, but not great. You know, I don't think a sentence was wasted. She had a couple of embellished sentences, but the embellished sentences were dynamic storytelling in that they gave enough to the audience to continue to keep them in scene. And so whenever she did that, she always did that in dynamic ways. That might read purple to some people, but never felt purple to me as a consumer. And one of the things that she had that was purplish, quote unquote, in terms of it was very flowery compared to some of the way that her dialogue played out, for instance, was talking about how it had seemed to her that the last year had been sort of this island of their family, like this this perfect snowball capture of them being enough for each other in just this great year that they've had and the betrayal she feels kind of when she finds out that her mother isn't fully sustained by that alone that's not enough for her Mm -hmm. you know she tells her daughter in this very explicit way that's very honest and emotionally mature in a way that i wish that my mother had been able to communicate those feelings to me because i'm sure the feelings were the same it's where i'm more myself with you than i'm comfortable with And I want an escape from that. And having a partner now as an adult, like you said, I feel that very much. Sure, I'm more myself with my partner than I am with anyone else. 
but also I mourn myself in this way that can be mysterious, that can be ethereal, that can be physical, that can be, you know, emotional in a different way. Clay pretend type situation where romance, this sort of mystical shade falls over and we become whatever we want to be for each other. Whereas for your children, you're presenting a different face entirely. You don't have that weird mysticism of sex and chemicals to escape into. All you have is love and physical reality and teaching them the best that you can teach them and being the best representation for them that you can. So you don't get to Yeah, it's part of that power dynamic too. Yeah. Yeah. You would talk about that power. Like, like I'm not going to flirt with my coworkers. (laughs) It's not traditional like you would think of it. It's not what you see on TV, but it is you know, even though it feels to the, the preteen like it's an equal partnership because of the way that they've taken on more than they would otherwise if there were two partners leading the ship instead of them being one of the partners helping keep it afloat. But you're still not quite in the know. You don't have that emotional maturity, even if you have that responsibility and maturity developed in like the way that you're behaving. You don't have that extra bit of magical otherness that puberty that that that's not a part of your relationship with your family you know and it can't be it shouldn't be that's universally looked upon as something that's a dysfunctional family unit like if there is that with your internal family members like that's not a good thing to have it's a good thing not to have but it feels like why can't i be part of the club i don't understand what it is you're even talking about that's a really like sad lonely feeling and it, what is easier than being present for that feeling is to get mad about it, to be hateful about it, to be like, why do you need that? Because I don't need that. And I feel like this is enough. As an adult, I would not now, no, looking back on it, I yeah. don't think so. But at the time, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, like, how dare you? We work so yeah. well on our own. <laughs> I didn't have that growing up, but I... I... understood it reading it and I thought I think that speaks to the power of Margaret's writing is that even not living with that I could still relate to that betrayal with it but it ended up so well though because Chris is the name of the love interest the adult love interest he was just so patient and obviously just out of his depth too with the entire situation I mean he starts wooing this woman and then all of a sudden her child becomes sick with an incurable curse and it's just this whirlwind comfort you know hookup and then he just slides in and it's just so Mm -hmm. wonderful and even what I appreciated about the writing for Laura is that Laura even like looks at her mom and describes like how her mom is happy and comfortable and how she hates it because it looks like she doesn't even belong there and so you just feel so strongly for her being the third person looking in of just like wow but you're right that mom, her mom was able to do it in a very mature way. Like her mom oh, sitting yeah. there and again, having that conversation about like, I could disengage for a little bit with him. It's like, yeah, as a, as an adult woman, I'm like, yeah, that mm-hmm, totally agree. <laughs> like, <laughs> the thing about this book, I think that makes it one that I read over and over again, even as I get older and it never loses its flavor is it does such a good job of granting validity to that emotional state without demonizing it or making it dirty you know they don't take it outside of what it actually is you know they don't make it you know they use the word jealousy but there's no innuendo there it's just i feel like i should be enough and i'm not and there's good reason but not that i can understand fully yet at this age 
And then they, they tell you that that's okay, sort of by making it work out, by letting those emotions come and then flow and then move on in a very natural progression, very quickly, in a way that I had to experience over years of confusion and anger and mistrust, you know, and it helps that the first one was such a good one. And it wasn't sort of an asshole who was domineering or coming in thinking it needs to be a nuclear family when that's obviously not the dynamic he's walking into. or you know, like being weird with the prepubescent daughter or which happens a lot more than I think people like to give credit to whenever it comes to a single mother raising a daughter, bringing new people into relationships and households. Yeah, I'm glad Chris and Laura had very little interaction. Yeah, but, but what they did was him putting friendly. Laura's mom in her place. <laughs> yes, yes. But, but also it was friendly, even though, you know, she was acknowledging that in herself, she was able to try to be as fair as she could as a teenager, too. It just felt like the author was giving people permission to have these feelings as a natural course of the situation that they're faced with, but then also allowing them to better in a very fairy tale way. Mm -hmm. Best case scenario, mm -hmm. everyone is happy in the end. So I kind of want to just go over that ending scene. And so here's spoilers. If you've listened, you should know we're going to talk about them. But in the end of the book, after Chris and Laura come to this tenuous truce where Laura's like, all right, my mom's happy with you. I can't begrudge that. He he does some pretty nice things. Like Laura's mom gets apprehensive about Sora or Sari being around. And she's like, why is there a boy with you? And... Chris very nicely turns to her and is like, well, you have the same expression that Laura had when you brought me home, so maybe chill. <laughs> I thought that was delightful. And then even after that, they're having this very sweet family moment where Chris is making them dinner and he kind of comes in all suave with little glasses of champagne and apple juice for Jacko and tries to do that traditional thing where the new father figure tries to bond with the oldest daughter who the daughter at this point was also like fucking watch it with my mom and so he asks her <laughs> if he wants if she wants to have a little dance in the living room and she defers and it's like no dance with my mom first and i thought that was really really sweet because it didn't do that forced like oh great now you're like my daddy you know <laughs> it's just very like nope you're with my mom still that's your relationship and i'm gonna hang out with jacko as the kid and i was like what a great moment of strength for her to kind of step aside and like make their relationship their relationship you know and not this like forced relationship she's supposed to have with Chris now because he's in her mother's life and I just really kind of liked that little action you know yeah I really think she did so many smart things with the way that Chris and Laura work in this novel and I think one of the things that people get wrong when they date single mothers is they're trying to make the kids their business in a very particular way mm -hmm. that they don't usually have the skills for. Maybe they have children of their own. Maybe they don't. It's worse when they don't, in my experience, because they feel like they should do something like they see on TV, and it's not, they're that's not the situation. Yeah, and, and Chris is affable. He's friendly. He understands that he doesn't understand. You know, and and he's just there to have a good time and to be there as like someone for 
their mother, and he does very solid actual things that Allure actually resents a little bit, and you can tell she does because it's so easy now that there's a little bit extra money. There's this bachelor who's got all of his paycheck mm-hmm. to himself, no responsibilities in that way, <sighs> so he does things like goes and gets her mom's car battery recharged, whatever that's become a ritual for Laura, so that's very disruptive of him to have done that, but also it's very that it's was very also important a to really have funny that. scene. Reading that sentence where he's like, uh, where she's like, of course he got the battery charged, so now we don't have to shove the car down the hill to jumpstart it. And I'm like, girl, why are you mad? And even she's like, why am I mad? Like, why do I resent this? She's like, my brother is dying and I'm pissed about this battery. (laughs) You can really tell that the way she thinks is very fantasy. And as someone who buried themselves in fantasy and, and made up narratives for the world around them as at that age in particular, but also a little bit carrying on into the rest of my life, it's a way you cope. You know, you find the fairy tales as, and, and it, it's a well established that she's an avid reader. You find the fairy tales in the world around you. You philosophize. You make things metaphors. You look at your mother's face and think she looks proud and noble. You know, you you look mm-hmm. and you see things and you make them mean things because that is how you're coping with your situation. And also, I think it's just a more robust way to look at the world. Like, I feel like it's just a better way to experience things. So why not have that <laughs> when you can't, like, you know, start your car without pushing it down the hill? You might as well think that she looks triumphant and proud and strong, you know, and admire the strength that it takes to get through those hardships rather than focusing on the hardship itself which is something that i know from experience i felt like we did very well for a short period of time there right around the same age that laura was whenever this all happened but you know then you see laura sort of go off into the world outside of this family unit and you see her interact with this sorry guy and he's just that particular brand of bad boy that i think might have actually ruined me in how I approach other oh, literature, <laughs> because I was like, "Oh fuck, is this like the OG reason that all of the bad characters are the ones that I love the most?" Because he is wicked, but he's not actually <sighs> bad. He's got these high moral structure oh, senses God. that he's confused and angry about having. You know, he's like, "I don't feel things," but he does. He just does it in this very specific fucked up way that Laura's like, "Hey, do yes. the same," but also like. It's not that hard. Quit, quit making it so hard. And they just work so well together in that way. <sighs> I want to talk about sorry and romance so bad. Okay. So how do I want to phrase this? I don't even know. But um, <laughs> Laura is being 14. I love how she talks about boys because it's definitely this like burgeoning like womanhood thing. And she's like, I don't know my body. And I'm really uncomfortable with the fact that I'm now like, maturing and people are seeing me as this maturing figure and then sorry comes along she has to seek him out for his assistance because she knows he's a witch and she's in his room and sorry's like you find this out later but sorry's like time to shine baby and she's (laughs) like you have a naked woman on your wall and that's a picture of me and my brother's dying and he's like you you just came here because your brother's dying he's like why do i care he's like i could sleep with you she's like no like my brother's dying and so they have this like immediate dynamic of where he's also 
very polite to her because he makes sure she gets home safe. He's making sure she's safe and comfortable because his mother and grandmother are like, well, you could become a witch to save your brother. And he's like, you should really think about that first because you can't like undo that. And like, I want to protect you kind of from this, but not in that chauvinistic way, but kind of in that like, I don't have a heart. I don't have a soul. But, you know, you should really think about this and ask about it. But I am not involved. And mm-hmm. he's just a sarcastic crass. Like, isn't the world shitty? <laughs> like, you want to make yeah. out? And she's like, no, what the fuck? And <laughs> but at the same time, she's like, kind of? Like, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So every time he's like, I, I'm, I could carry you. I could be like, look at this romance, like romantic move I'm making. She's like, bitch, no, I'm independent. I'm like, what the hell? And the last time I heard about... Ben being all like nightly and stuff it was just to get laid and then treat women like crap so excuse you you're not carrying me anywhere i'm walking and he's like that's kind of (laughs) hot but what i what i loved about that dynamic is even though sorry is this powerful sexy enigma as being an older man he's still such a sweetheart because he has a shelf of romance novels in his room Mm -hmm. and at one point she's being powerful and awesome and he just like writes his initials on the back of her neck and those are such like so shoujo anime like anime moves yes just like little romance things where you're like god you're such a sweetheart and he's watching her be this powerful being that's making these really difficult decisions and it's forcing him to reflect on his own life and he's reflecting it back on her and they have that weird like what are we on are we are we off like what are we kind of situation but i i think his ultimate declaration of affection to her is so much sweeter than any kind of like boombox outside the window or flowers display again he had this poster of this naked woman on his wall and her like a little picture of her pinned to it and she's just like do you do you want me to be comfortable with this like what is this like this is weird and so at one point towards the end of the book he goes i took the poster down and i re- i was like that is the sweetest thing he knows how to do that is super yeah. sweet i don't know why that's super sweet what a what a wonderful display there you go it's <laughs> it's no paying off this morally twisted man to marry your sister you know like mr darcy it's no darcy but like damn that was the best he could do and that was awesome that was what she wanted and then of course he's later on he's being like super sweet to her little brother and i'm like oh you're hooked you're just yeah you're 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 stuck now buddy disgusting sweet so sweet it's so so sweet it's gross but it's also interesting because he's such a flawed character in his own right you know he's got his own emotions. such a child yeah (laughs) yeah he's literally just sort of unable to really have that confidant because of his situation being a new witch you know and Mm -hmm. and his years of abuse and trauma right so he so he doesn't really want to talk to people about that but because she could see through and see that he was a witch, which is so much an integral part of that trauma that he went through. Like, you can't really have that conversation in a in a meaningful way without having the other bit to it. So she sort of is like this de facto person that he can immediately open up to. And they've been kind of dancing around in this sort of mutual fascination. Like, this person, from her aspect, is like, he's got a secret. I know what the secret is. Therefore, I have power over him. It's mysterious. He's powerful. 
and I have something over him, so now I'm powerful, but in this very, like, sexy, mysterious, like, the neck that turns the head kind of way, you know, like, she doesn't know, she's just feeling mm-hmm. it out, she's got hormones, and, and her body's exploding, she's like, I don't know, but I like it, and he's and like, she has a skirt that's a little too short, yeah, and he's like, this woman can see me, like, can she, like, what, what else can she see, like, if she can see me, then I can enhance this whereas before he was hiding all of that part of himself so like he wasn't really fully able to express himself except for with her and that was the same with her now and there was a little bit of tentativeness too because he he felt protective of her but not in a way that takes away her power but in a way that it's like are you fully informed yeah like i would like you to be yeah, fully like, informed <laughs> speaking of fully okay so one i really i can't stop thinking about this part where though where he's like she's like i'm obsessed with you because i know you're a witch and he's like well you have sexy knees <laughs> it's just like <laughs> i'm obsessed with you because you're cute <laughs> yeah like but what i kind of with that informed decision bit because he is a few years older than her. So by the end of the book, he's graduated school and is off to do adult things. And I do kind of like that there still is that tension that kind of comes with respect, their power, the secret universe that only the two of them share. And yet he's still like, it is illegal if I sleep with you. You know that. Like, he's like, I'm attractive, but your mother would still murder me. And she's like, yeah. And he's like, oh, but I'm an unreliable narrator and like i was reading it I'm like bitch i know you ain't gonna do shit because you respect her and he's like in a few years maybe we could get married and I'm like you sappy motherfucker you yes. like you pretending you're all heartless and shit but no you're sitting there and you're like i just want to be love struck like an, and he's still chastising her like you just want a romance you prefer the romance more than the interaction and i'm like your hand is up her shirt and you're the one who's hesitating like let's be real he does this over and over again where he's like i am this unreliable uh, this mysterious i i could be wicked at any time but because she accepts that about him and is just like, all right, are you going to be wicked? And he just like, can't because now like that would be wicked of me. And now I'm thinking about my own wickedness. And, oh, no. Like I have a reason to care. <laughs> yeah, you called my bluff. I have a reason to care. Turns out I haven't been as morally ambiguous this whole time as I thought I was. But it was his, you know, it's the way that he had to protect. But his family didn't know because like they had said, they're a fond family love rather than a loving one, which felt very real. It's not mm-hmm. an experience that I had, but I could see that, like, maybe matching more of a situation you had or, like, somebody else who grew up sort of in suburbia. What they have is buying a new toilet seat instead of accepting that flaws and all. The other people are going to be ride or die for yeah. them. Like, I could see that, like, being very important because I see a little bit of it in the way that my mom and my you know, grandparents interact with each other. Like, the way that the generation before me sort of still kind of hold on to, like, the shadow of that from their past you know the trauma of that lack of i don't know what but that that fond rather than loving you know like not that there's not love there but that that fondness is the only way that they're allowed to express it i guess i don't know we're like mm. like i said it's, i don't relate guilt thing like the yeah the entire dynamic around Sorensen and his family was just guilt and so it had a lot to do with guilt and expectations because they were carrying familial expectations, cultural 
expectations with the magical thing and a lot of guilt because there was that continued idea that witches are women and Mm -hmm. then sorry was born they removed him from the home and put him in a situation that became quite horrible to say nicely but it was literal torture and he came out of it as something incredibly powerful and exactly what they needed and so there was this a, a lot of guilt tied up with the fact that they removed somebody who was exactly what they needed and it creates this fracture of a relationship for all of them and so their their dynamic was definitely fondness because it was less it felt like it was a relationship made from mistakes rather than successes mm-hmm. so yeah you know there was no kind of hard to love the person you fucked over yeah yeah well and you know like i guess that's the other part that i like too is you get all of that from a 200 something so we're talking about how mediocre the writing is but it's so tight you know like it doesn't even incredibly in my head i'm like yeah okay it's not it's not act level or whatever but I think it kind of goes back to that thing that we were talking about where children's media is not necessarily worse off for being made mm-hmm. for children. Just because the language used is not purposefully oblique and is very direct, is easy to follow. Yeah. Doesn't mean that it's not actually excellent writing. <laughs> but it doesn't feel like you would, yeah. you know, it's not, no grapes of wrath. You know, like, I know what you're meaning. Like, yeah. I, I also understand that myself. But it's so fucking good because of how it doesn't beat around the bush. It gives you a hint of mysticism. It opens you up to several emotional beats for every single important character. It doesn't waste its time doing anything but tell you the story. But it keeps you engaged the entire time. I'm just so sad because she's regretfully passed. You know, she lived, I'm like, this is a book from 1988. So she's she's no longer with us. But I'm so sad because in my head, like, it finishes itself so well, but I wish there was another. Because I think there's room for an older Laura and, a, you know, an older Sorrentine. Totally. And, and, like, whatever relationship they have afterwards. Oh my gosh, when they... When they shared their when they shared their first like soft kiss and she was like it it felt like a kiss that made me think of the past the now and the future I was like oh you're too young <laughs> like I know that's so sappy I love it like that's so sickly sweet but it's also like you're fourteen so chill but uh, at the same time like the shock that he felt at that and I was like. Oh, sorry, you're such a sweet little kid. You're just a boy who wants to be loved, and I love that for you. Anyway, the drama in my voice is accurate. But it kind of gives you, when you say it that way, it gives you the impression of, like, the book itself swoons over it, but the book's so matter-of-fact about it. Like, it's a sickly sweet situation that other people mm-hmm. will probably lead into and make it modeling. But Laura's like, it was disturbing a little bit, which is 100% how... I'm the most comfortable in my relationship. It should like, be. I am. This is vulnerable. You know, like, and it, your brain, like, mm-hmm. it's very, the way that she writes is very, like, that's a lot. You know, it's very present in that. Like, this is, this is, this is not small stuff. This is not a fantasy that I'm going to get mixed up in and forget about the real world. This is the real world being a, fa- like, a fairy tale, but it's also, like, fairy tales have murder and death in them you know (laughs) like this is not necessarily a good thing to have this kind of a connection this early with a witch who i have no idea like i've just really started to talk to them 
Like, I don't know him very well. There has such realism to it. It's like a mystical realism. I think that's why I say it's a little bit more mature. It's a little bit more mature than a young adult novel that I, you know, would have experienced. Because even then, the romance in Blue Sword is still very, like, it's combative. A bit like in the changeover but it's not direct it's alluded to through very subtle motions where in this one sorry is always looking at her with like a wink and an elbow nudge like hey 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 and she's like what the fuck <laughs> my brother's dying and he's like but hey hey you and me and she's like again my brother's dying uh <laughs> but like even with that she's like well i guess if you can help me save him i'll put on some makeup for you you know like it's it's still blatant yeah and so she, it felt more in- natural and it was shameless whereas like the blue sword it's like okay now you're suddenly together. yeah exactly like you could tell she's in participant in the chemical side of the attraction but she is emotionally like distracted but then also she falls into it as a distraction from that heavy emotional like burden of trying to save her brother. I want to talk about the bad guy a little bit. Okay. Whenever yes. you're ready. Well, I was just. <laughs> and the bad guy is actually the part that I want to talk about the union too. So I guess, I guess that's a good, it's a good change. God, anytime we talk about romance on this podcast, I feel the need to defend in a very like reactionary feminist way. The main drive is very much emotional and relationships. But as much as I want to say that romance is the linchpin, it's really not. The bulk of the storytelling is about her getting power on her own. Like, it's about her emotional Mm -hmm. maturity. It's about her, like, coming into her womanhood in a very kind of on-the-nose, like, oh, witches, you know, like, but also ambiguous because sorry exists. So the only part that doesn't age quite as well are the discussions of rape and sexual assault, not because they're not real. And it was very real to how I felt when I was that age. But hopefully moving forward, it won't be that way, you know? It does also feed into some archetypes of the idea that it's a stranger who's going to jump out of the bushes at you. Exactly. That was one thing I was like, eh, not so much. But the way it was prevented, though, I still thought it was a critique of the mindset. It was a dated mindset. Yes, exactly. Very dated yes. from activism and research, but at the same time, it was critical. It of even it. points out the yeah, at the it points out the incorrectness of the idea that only beautiful women are assaulted, because it, the person who was a victim in this book was a quote unquote plain, if not unattractive, young girl, and like it. I thought it was unfair and a little a little odd, but I thought it was pretty poignant to say like this was her realization that as she was becoming a woman, as she was turning fourteen, as she was as she was maturing, the realization that she could be a victim suddenly, you know, like yes. that, in which I think is a milestone that women still have now. It was. The language in the myth is just long outdated, long disproven. Yes. Because it's and, not and somebody in the bush, you, somebody, it's usually somebody you know. But it's still the narrative in a lot of places. So it does, it doesn't feel out of date in that way. Like, it feels like this is still happening. This conversation is still happening. I just have hope that it won't. And by addressing that as the mm-hmm. main concern, like, instead of turning the narrative to it's a power thing, instead of turning the narrative to it's people you know, it's saying that's unfair and also, like, that doesn't seem right. And also, like, that means that I have a target on my back at all times, which kind of feeds into and explains to me this comfort of being uncomfortable being seen, even though she's comfortable with her body. Like, she likes the the look of Mm -hmm. her body, but she's uncomfortable, made uncomfortable by the ability of other people to see it. Yep. But that's the only part of it that does it kind of jumps out at me as being a dated conversation, really, to be honest, other than, you know, things like 
looking for and, money to get a telephone answered or something, you know, like things like that, which are obviously yeah, like, or but, not be yeah, but it's like all right, yeah, yeah. socially no cell phones, no internet, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, and then also in other places, you see this woman being so advanced in her feminism. Yes, because she says things like a man up chant because her last name's Chant, and then she's like, I can be just as good not being one, you know, just small statements like that she doesn't make a big deal out of it she's just laura who has been raised by a matriarch (laughs) who was done down by her father who bounced when she was young and is now taken on the world by herself with her mother like absolutely is that how she doesn't hate other women she doesn't hate other women in this book which is just great yeah yeah it's so it's you know she's uncomfortable she's oh yes Mm -hmm. She's forgiving when it comes to other women because, like, her father's new wife is involved and encounters her and she, like, lets go of that animosity. It's just, it's pleasant. It's just pleasant. But you wanted to talk about the bad guy. Who? I would love to talk about the bad guy. Who in the movie is played by Peter Pettigrew from Harry Potter. Oh, I don't like that. I think it is the most accurate typecasting ever. But go ahead. Go off. Tell me why. That's fair. I imagined him shorter and, like, not as mousy, but that could just be because of his makeup from his Peter Pettigrew role. Now, let's talk about who the villain is a little bit. The villain, you said, is, like, this lemur, which is hilarious because I do make a monkey primate joke. I thought, I was like, "Eh, I get that. Um, but it means some, like, undead soul. He's, like, an energy vampire. He's trying to live longer to experience human sensation. And by doing so, he is sucking the life force out of Jacko. Because Jacko has so much expectancy, right? And it's disturbing because he smells like peppermint in, like, a sickly way. And you're like, oh, that's disgusting. And he is not a good guy. Very creepy character. I I imagine him as kind of, like a shorter stretched out maybe a little bit more caricaturish version of the character from the pixar chests short you know like the old man with the big glasses just imagine him more like that in kind of a like a smaller spidery physique than more of a mousy weaselly kind of character you know Mm -hmm. something that kind of looks like a circus master like a really old circus master or kind of could be confused with a clownish old man character so he's a little bit disarming yeah i could see that but also i i have i have a different way that i had interpreted it and then had it reinforced by pedigree which is that that's he was a plump person because of the joy de vivre he had you know he had this this overabundance of life that was his whole motivation. So the idea of him being kind of shorter and plumper made sense in my head as they were talking about things like him, his cheeks filling out, you know, the idea of him being kind of a, a wasted fat person. You know what I'm talking about? Like somebody who had all of that extra mm. weight. And then like, so the loose skin, the loose, you know, like the idea of a droopiness. And, you know, even if he's immaculately taken care of, you know what I mean? Like the, the idea of like the neck and the age spots and the, you know, somebody who had lived a plump life who had aged into sort of that spidery sort of feel and then fills out like a tick whenever he gets his feet, you know? Yeah. But the descriptions of his teeth were always what stuck with me because his smile is so horrifying. 
And when you see Peter Pettigrew smile with all of his teeth, and they're all long and they're British and they're kind of aggressive, you're like, fuck, that's the smile this woman was fucking writing about in this book. God damn it. That is the most, like, accurate, like, somebody took a teeth cast, like, a tooth cast of this fucking guy and put it into Peter Pettigrew's mouth, and it was, like, that is, oh, God, you know, like, ugh. I'll have to watch the movie. Yeah. I'll have to watch the movie next. But I did not like a lot of the visual of that movie. But I thought the character casting of the bad guy was spot on. But like I said, I don't like a lot of... It is a different... It isn't this book. It is a very different thing. And it was a good book. I mean, like a good movie for what it was. It was interesting kind of because it was like a New Zealand picture. So it's not like super funded. But it was well funded for it being a New Zealand picture. You know what I mean? So it Mm -hmm. does a lot of like Mm -hmm. low budget things. But it is... It is such a it is such an experience in my head after years and years of consumption, new consumption of this of this literature. You know, I just I have right. a hard time. It's like more grimdark than than colorful and vibrant like I expected. That's it. No, fair warning. That's a good warning. No, I I what I wanted to also bring up about the villain is so defeating him, and this kind of mm-hmm. describes the magic of the universe. Defeating that him involves Laura taking command of him through her own stamp or brand essentially and kind of being able to name him and take command of his body that way and i thought this was kind of really pivotal for what sorry was bringing to the story because laura when laura took over was also filled with a sense of vengeance and when she pulled all of what the villain was eating away from him and he started to decay her vengeance then became this obsession with, you know, embarrassing him, weakening him, poisoning him, and kind of torturing him until he succumbed finally, or until she let him go. And then Sari was like, man, you know, I think I, f- I think it was along the lines of like, being heartless and being dark like that implies still having a heart. And I'm not sure I want to do that if, you know this he's like are you sure you want to torture him because of what it's doing to you right now and you know i remember her being kind of like the fuck does that mean you know like getting a little mm-hmm. combative towards it because like he just pretty much was like "Ooh, wow this is kind of like gross and terrifying torturing him like this and so she finally you know reflects on it thinks about it and ends the bad guy finally tells him to go away go back to where you came from as kind of a show of not torturing which i thought was really interesting because like it always comes up all the time right where there's this heartless character who's like letting him live would have been more torturous than just killing him and everyone's like that was so extreme that was so heartless and now seeing it from that perspective from laura being like i was gonna let him live but under my terms and i was like oh that is pretty torturous yeah and i got i have i have the (laughs) sentence I have the sentence, I think, that best encapsulates how, because she's so good with language. Given the chance to be cruel, did you get cruelty out of your system by acting on the chance, or did you invite it in? I was like, now I have to rethink my entire feelings about the world. And it does, I mean, like, it kind of feeds into sort of my more mature, like, version of pacifism that I've employed as an adult. I'll defend myself, and I have feelings about defending other people, but also, like, 
you know, what's necessary versus if it feels good, maybe you should look at it twice. Is that a, a behavior you want to encourage yourself or is it something that you want mm-hmm. to, you know, really evaluate and see if maybe you need to do some bad conclusion? Very proud of her character as a protagonist for going, <sighs> okay, and just that feeling of drainage after you accept the fact that that wasn't a good path for you to follow when you let it go. You know, she feels very much like just empty afterward, after the whole exchange. Like, did you get the e-reader format, Erin? Yeah, the e-reader format. It is easy to find. Okay, cool. Good. I'm glad. Because it is so worth it. Like, it's not going to mm-hmm. be on any of these bestseller lists that you would think of, but it's still kind of around because they did make a movie fairly recently about it. And it is so good. And it's a short read. I'm not asking you to read a thousand pages, even though I have and probably will in the future. I've done it before, and I'll do it again. What a threat. Can I talk about one of our successes? Yes. Or I guess some news. Well, first of all, we broke 2,000 followers on Twitter. Yay! Oh my god, that's crazy, though. Yeah. I did not make a tweet about it because I didn't want to seem too arrogant. And I didn't want to uh-huh. jinx it, but I'm putting it in recording. <laughs> uh, so but that's a huge, that's just a huge thing for us. And thank you to everybody who has followed us on Twitter and given me that burst of pride. You deserve it. Appreciate you. Yeah. Uh, second thing, as an alternative means of garnering some money for the podcast, we have, and by we, I mean, I have opened up the Intentionally Bad Art to commissions. It's $1. It has to be safe for work and only one character with a simple background and something you don't mind me spending only 15 minutes on. <laughs> but th- those commissions can be found through our Kofi page. Just put instructions on what you want and give me like a week to do it because I'm a busy lady. <laughs> okay. Okay. But yeah, you can find that on our Kofi page, which is a link in our link tree, which is always connected to this episode, the Twitter our fireside or occasionally on our facebook page all right well thank you all so much and we definitely appreciate it yeah thanks for being here let us know if there's anything we could do better or worse bye Bye. (laughs) wait have i been treated like i'm a dingus my entire life and then kind of swooped out of nowhere and was like competent bitches <laughs> is that me it's, i don't know <laughs> i've only met you since you've been competent so. i don't know either. i don't know <laughs> that's true